you're passionate about transforming retail operations and improving performance, plus you're accountable for key change projects and programs in your company, then you're in the right place. Welcome to the Retail Transformation Show with me, Oliver Banks. Hello, hello, and welcome to the Retail Transformation Show. This one is episode 149. I am Oliver Banks, and I'm delighted to be your host, and I'm proud to be your guide to support you, to support you on the path to successful retail transformation. Thank you for tuning in. Now, today we dive headfirst into a topic that surprisingly hasn't featured on all of the previous episodes. And I think it's time that we turn that around because it is a huge topic that affects many, many retailers negatively. And many retailers also don't really have a robust plan in place to overcome it. So today we are diving into returns and the returns conundrum or contradiction as we'll explore in just a little moment. Show notes for today are at obandco.uk slash 149. Now, of course, returns are not a new retail challenge, but it does continue to be a thorn in the side of many retail operations, but especially for e-commerce retail operations. Returns for customers have become a major decision factor about whether to place an order with a retailer or not. And the returns experience is also a major factor as well. Narvar's consumer report in 2019 found that 96% of consumers would buy again from a retailer after a good, positive, or satisfactory returns experience. Conversely, Narvar's research then from 2020 found that 33% of repeat customers, so these are your most loyal customers, would not shop again after a poor returns experience, which is really interesting because it's a great representation of the fragile nature of loyalty in today's world. So we know it is an important factor for consumers, but it is tricky. Supply chains do struggle. Now, supply chains are highly optimized for the initial journey. That is getting it through a series of different warehouses and shipping lanes, etc., and ultimately into the hands of customers. But these same supply chains are not very good at the returns leg, which makes it difficult. It makes it prone to mistakes. And ultimately it does make it expensive. But why is this so? Why is the returns leg so hard? Well, from my point of view, it's down to the high levels of variation in the process. It's sporadic in nature. There are peaks and troughs and it is very unpredictable. There's no exact forecast that you can resource up against. You've got a lot of variation when it comes to the return quality, whether that's the product quality that is coming back to you, the packaging it's returned in, the completeness of return slips or returns forms, etc., being able to backtrack that to a specific order and a specific customer, whether all the product tags are in place, the product packaging is ready for resale, whether a product is presented in the right way, it's folded with all the clips in, particularly for clothing, obviously. So there is a lot of variation in that return quality right there. 
And there are multiple paths through the supply chain as well. Multiple routes back in, whether it be from stores or from different collection points or different couriers. And then through a grading process, you'll then have a number of different reasons. And then it may get routed on to be restocked or collected in bulk for sales to a, to a jobber or something, donated or reprocessed or cleaned or delabeled or destroyed even. So lots of variation in the paths that that return takes. And then all of this variation is happening whilst there is relatively low volume, making it more of a one-off bespoke processing activity rather than a highly automated mass manufacturing or production line. So there are many challenges with the whole returns operation. And it is full of conundrums and contradictions, as I suggested right at the start. We, of course, want to make returns easy for customers, but then we don't want to have higher returns because it's difficult to process them. So why don't we make the returns policy tighter, but then customers are less likely to purchase? So let's do the opposite. Let's make the returns policy really generous. Sales will increase. That's wonderful. But then returns increase as, as well. Even if with this new policy, <laughs> your returns as a percent of sales is still the same. You still just get higher returns. So it is a challenge, but we cannot hide from the returns process. It is a challenge and it does represent a thorn, as I say, for, for many different retailers. So let's explode this a little bit more. Firstly, why are there returns? Well, there are a number of different reasons for returns. Firstly, it could be disappointment with the product, whether that is poor or inaccurate information on the site. So fit is a great example here. You know, again, particularly fashion here, where I thought I would fit into this particular product because that's what I normally wear from other retailers, but the information meant I got it wrong. So it doesn't fit me. So I need to return it. Sticking with that theme of product disappointment, it could be poor quality photography, so not as expected as well. So again, purchasing through a computer screen, colors are different. I open it up and it's just not what I expected, particularly if I'm trying to color match something, right? It could be a, a product quality issue. So I've started to use the product and it's failing, whether it's a proper failure or whether, you know, again, thinking about clothing, seams are coming apart or stitching's coming loose, or maybe the material is bobbling or whatever. And I use fashion as quite a lot of these examples because let's be honest, fashion does get the raw end of the stick in the world of returns. And thinking about the different categories, it's also worthwhile understanding what it means for you, of course, as well. For example, Accenture did some research, a little bit old now, 2011, which found that actually out of consumer electronics products that were returned for faulty reasons, only 5% were actually truly faulty. Many of those were classified as basically user error because someone has got frustrated with that consumer electronic product right out of the box and sent it back thinking it's a product fault when actually... Maybe they should be picking up the instructions. <laughs> so you've got product disappointment. You've got poor product quality. And then you've got a number of different customer behaviors as well. 
And I'm sure you can reflect on some of these. So some of these behaviors that do drive returns are bracketing, for example, buying multiple different sizes or variants to check the fit or color, but then obviously returning those that don't fit or are not the right color. And this is, of course, a challenge because it not only creates a returns problem, but also a stockholding problem in as much as you need more stockholding than you will actually sell to maintain good availability. Just because you need to allow for those products going out to consumers, that customer holding onto that product for perhaps up to 30 days, let's say, before that then comes back. And then again, depending on the category, maybe it needs to come back and go straight into sale if the styles have moved on and that is now last season relatively. In a physical store, of course, this bracketing takes place in the changing room, right? Where you can try on different things. You work out what does and does not fit and and leave it there. So bracketing is definitely something that drives returns. Wardrobing is another well-documented behavior and of course prolific in fashion where customers are getting a product, wearing it or using it a little bit. You know, maybe it is getting a dress or a suit to go to a particular event or party or whatever. So the customer is extracting the value, but then trying to get the return and importantly, the refund all for free. It's basically a return service that you run as a charity. Rental for free, right? Now, this is, of course, challenging because not only does it increase returns, but you also end up with more quality issues at the return point as well. And also it will devalue the quality of your return root causes, which is something we'll come back to in a little bit, because no one's going to openly admit that they wore this particular product one time and they don't need it anymore. So it is going to go back with a fake root cause, right? It didn't fit or it's not as described, whatever. Where in actual fact, the reason was that the customer didn't want to pay for it. (laughs) And then the third customer behavior that can drive returns is buyer's remorse. Now, of course, in the world of e-commerce, it's easy to press the buy button when half concentrating, maybe sitting on the sofa, maybe whilst commuting on a lunch break, whatever. Quick, quick, click, 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 purchase, bosh, done. And of course, especially with one click features to make the whole buying experience and checkout experience frictionless. You brush through all of this buying experience even faster, but then you get the harsh reality of actual life when perhaps a customer realizes that he or she should not have bought this in the first place. And actually they do have this buyer's remorse and they want to send the product back. And buyer's remorse, of course, in physical stores is slightly less because The actions required to buy in the physical world are there. It causes you to think, right? Whether it is working out where the checkout is, whether it is queuing up to pay, whether it is even the physical act of getting out your wallet or your purse, tapping your card or your phone, whatever that is, the physical payment, again, is another element that allows you just a moment to think, actually, do I really want to buy this? And I can certainly think of times where I have been standing in the queue and said, actually, I don't really want this and gone and put something back, right? I'm sure you can reflect on that as well. Of course, in an e-commerce world, particularly if you are doing one-click purchase, 
that's already on its way to you (laughs) before you've even had a chance to think about it. So those are three customer behaviours that do drive returns. And there are, as we say, lots of different reasons, whether it is the product disappointment, whether it is the poor quality, or whether it is these different customer behaviours. And of course, it is important to collect this information for reporting, and most importantly, for improvement as well, especially if you don't already do this. But why else are returns a difficult challenge to deal with? Well, firstly, they are cross-functional in nature. Many different business units play into returns, either as an input or an output, whether it is operations that are physically moving the product, whether it is a customer service team that, of course, is dealing directly with the customer, whether it is finance and the flow of cash perhaps back to customer, but also writing stock off, whether it is the commercial team and how a particular product or category is performing and what those returns are doing to that, whether it's even all the way back to designers that could be amending the product to be able to reduce returns. And in fact, a McKinsey survey found that 58% of retailers felt there was a lack of accountability or ownership from any single department or division within the business. But thinking about just how cross-functional it is, even if there was a clear business owner identified with so many different inputs and so many different outputs, you quickly realise that the only person with full ownership is, in fact, the CEO. (laughs) That's how complex it is. Another reason that makes it difficult is the whole grading process, judging the return, shall we say, and perhaps letting the customer know the bad news. Someone has to be the face of returns for the company. And when that grading process looks at a product and says, actually, I'm not going to accept this return for whatever reason. There are, as you can imagine, many different challenging behaviours exhibited by customers. So it is important to think who is dealing with returns from a customer service perspective. And actually, how are you going to give them training for conflict resolution? And how are you going to support their mental health as well? because they're going to be open to many, many different stressful situations every single day. And then also following on from that grading point, what happens and how are you going to deal with that? Is it that you are going to put the product back in stock and what needs to happen for that? How are you going to repatriate it with the rest of that stock of that particular SKU? Are you going to collect them in bulk and send them off to jobbers? And do you need to delabel it or debrand it? in some way, so it is not the same as a full price product? Is it that you need to reprocess it, whether it's refolding it, whether it is cleaning it, or even just repackaging it in the proper way and making sure that perhaps all of the parts are there? And of course, there are stories of retailers where returns are being destroyed, whether it's burnt or shredded, or even just sent to landfill. Which, of course, in a world where sustainability is so key, this is really a challenge. But it's not there, of course, to intentionally be damaging to the environment. It's there to protect the brands and to avoid soiled products finding their way to customers or saturating the market with discounted seconds, which ultimately devalue the brand, right? So there are lots of different things that need to happen after that grading point. And it is worthwhile thinking about the circular economy as you step through this and design out 
what that loop looks like. And if you've not already checked out episode 136 of the Retail Transformation Show with Karen Bandel, where we talked about the circular economy, then that is definitely well worth a listen. So I hope that's given a good grounding around some of the different challenges with returns. And of course, I'm sure you've got other items which you would add in there as well. But I'm keen to move on to solutions. So what can you do about this particular problem? Well, I wanted to start off by thinking about who is the benchmark for returns. And for me, I came up with Stitch Fix because they are very intentional about returns. Their business model depends on returns. If you're not familiar with Stitch Fix, they're a fashion company, but they work on personal stylists where they will send you a box of products for you to try on at home, work out what you like, what you don't like, and then return what you don't like. But you only pay for what you keep. So you don't actually pay anything when you get that first box through until you don't return something, right? So their business absolutely must have returns that work really well. And there are three things that I wanted to highlight to you that I think are really interesting around how Stitch Fix works to minimize or optimize returns. So firstly, they do look to cover their costs. So they do have what they call a fixed cost, which is the cost for the stylist to create this box. And if you don't keep anything, you pay for this fixed cost, which is £10 in the UK. But if you buy a product, then you can remove that cost from the cost of the product. So they are looking to minimize the entire box, the entire order being sent back. They also encourage customers not to return everything by giving a a decent discount, 20% discount for keeping all of the items, which of course boosts sales as well as reducing returns, a double win, right? But given all of that, they also do make returns easy to give that sort of positive experience to encourage customers keep coming back. So they offer prepaid postage labels and lots of choice about how to return, whether it's drop-off, whether it's sending through different couriers, etc. Lots of choice to give the customer the most convenient option. So they look to minimize it, they encourage customers not to return, and they do make it easy. And thinking about what else you can do, firstly, I would challenge you with that ownership question. Who should own returns in your company? And actually, what does that mean? You'll also need to think about what are the returns KPIs, both leading and lagging, and thinking about the broad nature of returns with all of those different inputs and outputs, who is in the cross-functional team that is there to tackle returns? And actually, what are the data flows to enable this team and ensure each person and each function has to focus on the data that they need? So for example, ensuring that product feedback gets back to the buyers or the designers to be able to take action on future ranges and thus stem the tide of future returns. And leading on from that point around data, you must think about data and how you are collecting data. In its most basic level, are you collecting root causes from customers? And how are you analyzing those root causes? And what is the action that you are taking from that data? But then also looking at what lines or what categories that you are selling that are leading to 
higher or lower rates of returns and why is that? And then are there any patterns around perhaps time of year or around customer segments that allow you to perhaps optimize your returns offering, your returns policy, or even just be slightly more aware of what returns looks like for your company? You may also want to think about any individual customers and what's happening there. And we will get back to some of the extreme work that is happening in a few minutes time. But as well as this data, it's also worth thinking about why you are getting returns. And I mean taking a really honest view. Are your products actually poor quality? Have you tried using them? Are you overselling them on your site perhaps? And if you are overselling or your products are poor quality, These returns would happen normally in a physical store. It's just that a customer would reject the product at the fixture before actually making a purchase. So you'd never actually know about these returns. But I would definitely challenge you to use your products like a customer would. Are they fit for purpose when you are actually using them, actually wearing products in real life? And then you must be thinking from a profitability perspective as well. Are you analyzing which of your products are a true commercial success? This starts very simply by assessing whether you are using total sales or net sales after returns as your your broad measure. But then are you also attributing the total and true costs of returns into the product or category performance? I.e. the cost of return is more than just refunding the price of the item to the customer, right? because there are perhaps non-refundable transaction fees depending on your payment provider. There may be return shipping fees, grading and restocking costs, particularly for labor in a warehouse, costs of damaged goods and the write-off of return stock, as well as the fact that you may need to sell that returned product at a discounted price in the future. So when you say a product is a commercial success, does it include all of that? And if not, what would be the impact if you did include it all? Would you actually find out that your most successful products are perhaps not actually your most successful products? Definitely one to get a hold of. Also in terms of positive actions that you can take, think about saving the sale, especially if you have invested in ads or customer acquisition, right? How can you understand what is wrong from the customer's perspective and what can you do to support the customer, especially if they think it's a faulty item when actually it's a user error, as we were talking about earlier, right? How can you offer exchanges or replacement products? How can you start a conversation to truly understand and build a relationship with that customer? And ultimately, this is going to help build a positive returns experience, which From the stats earlier on, we know that is going to lead to customers buying again from us, which is great news, right? Earlier on, I mentioned variation as a reason for why returns are hard. So what is it that you can do to deal with that variation? Well, that is definitely going to be a sort of a bespoke approach, but I would definitely encourage you to understand what all of the variations are that you are experiencing and then build a plan for each of those to separate out the problem and make your returns more predictable. And in turn, you will reduce the variation and it gets easier and simpler and more free-flowing to process returns. 
There are, of course, more extreme measures that are being put in place. Companies like Amazon and ASOS say that they block serial returners, which is great, but also consider that your serial returners, your highest volume returners, may just be your best customers as well. If they are ordering a lot from you, statistically, it's just more likely that they're going to be returning a lot to you as well. So you do need to be careful and clever about not blocking your best customers, right? As I'm sure you can understand. You may want to add restocking fees or ask customers to pay for the returns postage or at least part of the returns postage. And then, of course, more of the extreme measures are reducing the amount of time that customers have to return things, not giving cash refunds, but only allowing store credit for returns, or even telling customers that you just can't return things. Now, all of those are slightly more extreme because they do begin to veer towards the illegal side of trading, in my opinion. But of course, you'd need to understand that for your category and in your local market as well. So those are some of the more extreme things, but equally there are some really smart things that are coming along as well. Augmented reality and virtual reality allow you to try on products before they are there in a box in front of you. Now the best use cases in my opinion for this are cosmetics, which allow customers to see what they could look like with different makeup or different colorings, and that will help them to understand the product a lot better. Furniture also works really well with AR, because it allows you to see it in the setting, although you always have to just double check the measurement size, right? If it's displaying a a, a table, but it's smaller or bigger than in real life, then that's going to be a problem and actually could lead to more returns as well, right? Because I thought this particular piece of furniture would fit in this space and it doesn't. Clothing is starting to move into the world of AR as well, as I'm sure you've seen lots of examples But I don't think that's going to be much help reducing returns for a little while, just because the whole sizing and fit element isn't going to be accurate for some time, in my opinion. But let's wait and see, right? There are different dynamic routing options that, given the variation, mean that you do not have to process all your returns in the same way. So you can apply different paths based on the product and the reason for return. And this is all about reducing variation, right? So it may be that some products and some reasons for returns route to a fulfillment center, but it may also go a different route, you know, perhaps going direct to a a wholesale jobber, right, for resale. And then finally, there are options for variable levels of friction in the returns experience as well, based on who the customer is. So essentially, you are adjusting the returns experience and the returns policy to reward your high value customers or high value prospects with perhaps free and easy returns, for example, but dialing that down for other customers. Now, this is really exciting because it's the next level of personalization, in my opinion, in as much as you are actually adjusting and personalizing the entire offering, the entire proposition, the service levels. But of course, we will need to be careful taking this sort of variable friction path of making sure that we remain legal. I'm sure we'll need to get lots of advice as we go down that route as well. So those are some of the things that you could do to help overcome the returns conundrum. You, of course, want to reduce returns, but without turning customers away. 
and you want to process returns, but without impacting profitability. Now, maybe you think that returns is just one of those elements that comes part and parcel with a particular channel, e-commerce in particular, a bit like cleaning or dealing with unexpected stock loss in stores, right? You don't want to do it. You just have to. And that is true. But it doesn't mean that you should just accept the returns problem because you can influence and you can control the operation around it. But you do need to be intentional about making that happen. And all of that really starts with who owns returns in your business. And do they know that? I hope you have enjoyed this dive into the returns conundrum. If you have not already signed up for the free Retail Transformation Briefing, a weekly newsletter that comes out with the top retail transformation headlines from around the world that is going to help you stay in touch with the changing world of retail, then you can sign up for free at the show notes, which are at obandco.uk slash 149. That's obandco.uk slash 149. And like I say, it's absolutely free to sign up to get that valuable insight straight into your inbox every single week. There are a ton of other fantastic episodes to listen into. And in particular, if you enjoyed this episode, here are three to get started on. Episode 136 was around understanding the circular economy. And I sat down with Karen Bendel for that one, a fantastic dive into what will become increasingly important for all parts of retail to be considering. And returns absolutely plays into that circular economy. Then in episode 145, I dived into a topic that I'm particularly passionate about, overcoming retail's big contradictions. And of course, we touched on some contradictions in this episode as well. So returns definitely fits in there. And then in episode 105, I explored ways of simplifying the retail operating model. So again, that could help with that returns process as well. But also take a scroll back through the archive. There are, like I say, fantastic episodes waiting for you to discover. And I'll put those three recommended episodes for you on the show notes. So you can head over to obandco.uk slash 149 to get those three recommendations. And I will very much be looking forward to joining you in the next episode, episode 150. So I will see you there. Have a fantastic week. Bye. Bye.